Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility. I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. When we are pushed to a certain point, how and from where do we learn to handle the emotions, the fear, the anger that comes up? We'll be talking to Jamelia Nelson and Bob Hill, both of whom experience violent domestic situations, and we're going to learn about the opposite sides of their story. Bob is 36 years old and a resident at DRDC, where he's serving life without parole. He was born in Denver and raised in the North Glen area. He's a DU Pi group leader, and some impactful programs that he's completed are Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, Restorative Justice, and Bridges to Life. He's a positive peer mentor and volunteers as an offender care assistant. An interesting fact about Bob is that he used to have a passion for playing football and received a college scholarship for it. He walked away from the scholarship to be a dad. Jamelia Nelson is 35 years old, currently resides at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. She's also serving a life sentence. She's originally from Boston. She's completed courses in victim impact, self-esteem, anger management, parenting, sociology, alternatives to violence, computers, dog training. What has this girl not done? She's also done culinary arts. She's also a group leader for DUPI, and she's passionate about helping children in need. An interesting fact about Jamelia is that she wanted to play football when she was growing up, but her mother wouldn't have it. She's also extremely competitive when it comes to the volleyball game. Please be aware, this episode talks about domestic violence and other forms of abuse. Take care of yourself. This is is exciting for me because Jamelia, also known as Maji, she is uh, a part of the DU Prison Arts Initiative at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, and she's also a group leader. So she and I spend quite a bit of time together, and um, it's just uh, a gift to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm glad that we're interviewing you because uh, I know that you've talked a lot about this within the facility about this. So I, your name came up immediately, and I hope that what you share with us today will be able to help somebody else, and it also shed light to things that maybe aren't shed on sometimes. Thank you. Thank we you. We need some illumination. Yeah. I'm going to try to be transparent as I can. I don't even know a whole lot about you. So yeah. I want to know what it looked like before you came here. So um, growing up for me, I grew up in a two-parent home. Uh, both my parents were Christians. My stepfather, he's been around since uh, I was, since I could remember, and he was a minister. My mother, um, because we were Christians, it was her idea to be, it was the Christian you know, way to be a submissive wife at home. And so that didn't mean being, uh, she wasn't equal to my father. There was very much so equality in their relationship. She had a voice and I don't know. I just, I grew up in, uh, we were middle class and I grew up in an urban area. I went to public schools. And so I wasn't oblivious to like violence and drugs and gangs and stuff like that. I learned that from my community as well as my peers. And so, um, Fast forward a couple years down the road, I uh, 
did not graduate high school, but I did get my GED and I got my own place. And when I got my own place, I got uh, into a relationship. And so I tried to mimic that, that ideal that my family's had when I, my family had when I was growing up and I tried to mimic it and have that in my household, but I didn't fully understand it. And I tried to hold him to a standard that uh, I wasn't even reaching as a Christian woman. And so he didn't understand what it meant to um, understand my submission. He didn't know how to respect it. So he kind of just ran all over me and I really didn't know what to do with that. And so in my, in my home, my parents really didn't argue, you know, and so I was deprived of like knowing that conflict and resolution for a marital, uh, a marital relationship. And so, yeah, on the outside of uh, my home, it looked very normal. I was taking care of my cousin's daughter. I raised her. She had uh, given her up for adoption, and I went and got her. I raised her, and then I was paying my bills, paying my ba- my taxes. We partied. We had fun, and everything looked normal to everyone else, but for the very few people that did know us, they knew what was going on, and behind those closed doors, I was in an abusive relationship. How old were you then? Eighteen. Uh, so you moved out of your parents' home. You're 18 years old. This is like your real first relationship. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, um, ultimately, I, you know, I was in that abusive relationship, and I got to a point where things got really violent a particular day, and I was put in a position to, I needed to defend myself, and I was fearful of my life, and so I defended myself. Can you talk about... Um you said that there was abuse. Was there multiple times of abuse? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. There was emotional abuse. There was um, physical abuse, mental abuse. Yeah. And how are you? Are you still functioning normally? You know, like going to work, doing your thing? During that time, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to work. I was paying my bills. I was hanging out with friends when I was allowed. And I hit it as good as I possibly could when things happened. I definitely stayed in the house and away from my family and other people. I was so going to say, did your know. mom know? Did your mom know? Uh, she knew something. Moms always know. They have that intuition. But uh, she didn't. She would ask questions, but she didn't know for sure. There were really good times, and then there were really bad times. So it was hard to weigh like the good and the bad for me. But I would say when he drank or when he... Uh, When he drank or when he couldn't communicate properly or just when he felt insecure in our relationship, that's when it would happen. He would come in sometimes from a night of partying and, um, you know, he'd be drunk and that's when he'd wake me up and we'd fight, things like that. Did you feel like growing up, I know, did you feel like as being submissive? that that was your duty to accept that? Or did you know like you shouldn't have to? Um, I didn't see that type of dynamic in my family where there was that violence. So I knew that that, that, that the abuse was not right. The physical abuse that my father never talked to my mother and broke her spirit or made her feel less than who she was. He knew her worth and he treated her as such. I knew that that aspect of my relationship was not right. I knew it wasn't right and I knew it was different and I didn't think that I was supposed to stay through that, but I saw that long suffering that my mother had. And although she wasn't suffering per se, uh, they just, her and my father made it through any and everything. 
And so I thought like, things are going to get better. And I had that hope. And I thought that, you know, praying for him and just letting things die down and doing my part would make things better. And it did not. Uh, so when it first happens, sometimes you, you just try to make justifications or you you wonder what you could have done differently. You wonder um, what happened with him that day. You definitely try to defend him and um, you just try to see the good in this person. You think about all the good things that have happened and you're like, okay, this will probably never happen again. And so you stay. And that's what that looks like. You 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 stay and then you keep staying until... It's too late to leave. And when you say it's too late to leave, do you mean you're just sort of so far in or? You're so far in emotionally. And then you, there are instances where you become very afraid. There are things that happen in that relationship and during those abusive moments where you become very afraid to leave. Yeah. Do you see yourself as a victim or a survivor? Ooh, um, I see myself as both. I'm a victim. I was a victim long before I had a victim. So I definitely saw myself as someone who was victimized. And um, that's not to not say that I don't understand uh, that I do have victims as well as not only my victim, but his family and my family and all the people that I hurt. But um, ultimately, I'm a survivor as well because... I had to survive myself ultimately, my thought process and the things that I allowed him to make me feel, the things that I allowed him to make me do. Um, And so I had to survive my own train of thought. I had to survive not knowing my worth, not being confident in myself, what my peers thought about me when I got here, what my family may have thought about me, what his family thought about me. Those, all those thoughts were like, demons in my head that I, it it was hard to rid myself of. So I had to survive survive myself as well as my environment. Um, It was hard to adjust. I was broken. I was hurt. And everything that was bad, that's what I was uh, to the extreme. So I had to survive being cruel to people and hurting people just so that I wasn't hurt or severing relationships. So I would be the first to sever them. It just, it didn't matter what that looked like for me. Um, I just did it so that I wasn't broken in the end. And you're talking about in your time in prison? Yeah, my peers. We, we, um, yeah, so you came to prison having just been, gone through this insanely traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. And then when you arrived, you, it's almost like what I'm hearing is it sounds like you were re-traumatized in a way by right. coming into the... I have learned these, um, sorry, I have learned these behaviors from my relationship, like things that I did not see in my family, I learned them in my relationship. So when I got here, that's all I knew. And I was just left to my own devices. Prison was a very different place a long time ago. I've been down for 11 and a half years. And so 11 and a half years ago, there were not classes for me. There weren't, um, not tailor-made classes for domestic violence people, people who experienced that. There weren't Prison told you what you couldn't do and not what you could. And so today that's, uh, that's changing, and I'm really grateful for that. But I was left to my own devices, and I just didn't know what to do with what I had with my 
environment and what I had with what was left of me. Had you been uh, exposed to any type of prison before coming to prison? Uh, I dated guys that went to prison or jail, but I never <laughs> had a ticket and I went <laughs> to county for that, but that was it. Yeah. So you were a good girl before you came to prison, so to say. Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> and so you come here and you're like, what the hell did I walk into? It was a shock. It was definitely a shock. I wasn't fearful. I was too angry to be fearful of my surroundings. I just wanted to, um, I didn't care how I dealt with anything. I didn't pick my battles with staff. I didn't pick my battles with my peers. Uh, I was just really angry and sad and it didn't matter. So then I tried to build this wall and these boundaries and I didn't walk with my head down, but I did walk with my eyes down and I didn't want to look at anyone. I didn't want anyone to engage. I just was not a part of this environment. I felt like if I started acting like everyone else and getting to know everyone else, then that makes me a prisoner. And I struggled with the fact that I was a prisoner. So you came in um, really angry. Mm-hmm. Where did that anger come from? Um, it came from a lack of confidence. It came from a lack of knowing my worth. It came from everything that was taken from me in my relationship. Um, I was not the apple of my parents' eyes to me. You know, I lost who they thought that beautiful child was. I lost who the little girl that I was raising seen every day of her life. Um, I wasn't that person. I felt like, who was I to save this child? And now I left her. I just made, I threw myself the biggest pity party I, anyone could ever throw. I was actually fight. I was fighting for my life when I came to prison. I didn't. I didn't want to be here. Did um, what was your behavior like when you came to prison? Like, how did you act? Who did you interact with? I didn't interact with anyone. I actually had a young lady. Um, like I said, I would look down to the ground and not at anyone else. And I had a young lady like crouch down, like, "Hey, you're not here by yourself." You need to come out of that shell. You need to, you have things that you probably could give someone else. And I know you're feeling really badly right now, but you may have things that other people need. And that just really was a seed that planted and was planted and it grew. Wow. Mm-hmm. So someone just literally walked up to you and said that. Yeah. She like, <laughs> she knelt, she crouched down to where my eyes were because I would just watch where I was going. So I couldn't make any eye contact. I wasn't ashamed or I was, ash- I had shame for a lot of things, but I wasn't ashamed around my peers that my shame was just for myself and I didn't let anyone see that or I le- at least I thought I didn't. But um, yeah, she crouched down and she's like, hey, this is, you're not here alone. Not only do people want to be here for you, but you have people you need to be here for as well. You're quiet, Draper. <laughs> no, the reason, the reason... The reason I I don't like to say much during interviews like this is because you've clearly been through a lot, right? Yeah. And I I'm the only man speaking right now, right? And I can't tell you what that feels like. And I don't know. And the last thing I want to do is revictimize you. Mhm. So I'm going to shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Draper. <laughs> I just think, it's, yeah, I mean, I had a sense that's what you were feeling, but I, you know, people can't see you right now. So I wanted to know. I've come such a long way uh, within myself that, again, I survived myself. So 
um, I don't want you to feel like you can't talk to me. I feel like this is a huge step for me to even be in here with you guys and um, interact like this. It's a, a beautiful thing for me and it's a good lesson that I have come a long way to be able to do something like this. Uh, so I don't want you to not talk. I want you to, because there's perspectives that you may have that I don't have, you know, as a woman. So so do you mean it's a big deal for you to be in a room with this many men? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, because you, you, so, and also again, for our listeners, yeah, there are, how many men are there in here? One, two, three, four, five, six incarcerated men. And we currently have four, right? Yeah. And we currently have four incarcerated women. Normally we only have two. Um, this is a really big deal because normally, uh, obviously, incarcerated men and women don't mix. We have male and female facilities. Um, and this has been a gift of the podcast. Um, so yeah, what is it? I'm just going to, I think we should just go there. What is it like for you to be in this room right now with, so you're in a room with six folks who are in prison, six men who are in prison. Mm-hmm. Um how how's it feel? <laughs> how do you feel, um, Maji? So I'm very nervous, um, but again, I've come to a place in my life where I just have overcome so much that I real I really feel blessed to be here. I it is my Christian belief that men are my covering. So just to have that, and you guys are doing positive things with your time and being proactive in your life and productive, and this is what. I needed to be around when I was on the streets. And so I'm really, I really feel privileged right now. So you grew up in a household that taught um, within your Christian belief that men are the leaders of the, the home. Yes. Do you still subscribe to that belief? Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Um, now that I have a better understanding of what um, Christianity is, again, I I was young and didn't really understand what my parents were, why they were doing what they were doing. I just knew that that was the way of life for us. Uh, now that I've delved into my word and um, sought out answers and finally understand it, I know that that submission means equality. It doesn't mean that I don't have a voice. It doesn't mean that I don't get to have hobbies and friends and things that I want to do in life. Uh, the submission is actually empowering for me um, because I can step back and let someone else have my back and have theirs. And that's just how life should look for me. Uh, I've questioned whether or not it was brainwashed because not necessarily brain, brainwashed, but you know, when you, you're raised a certain type of way, those things affect your life later on down the road. Um, they imprint upon you and they are the reasons you react certain ways. They are the reasons why you make certain decisions that you make in life. So um, I've questioned, like, is this really the way of life? And the, the world has changed so much today. Um, I hear like conversations where people are like, wow, guys don't even pay for the meal anymore. They go Dutch. And I'm like, absolutely not. Not for me. You know, <laughs> I, I, I just, it's just a way of life for me. People think that, I don't know, they think that the woman is just incapable and she is not equal. That's what people see when they think of a submissive wife. But I don't see that in my mom and I don't see that in myself. Um, she submits when... 
You know, when it comes to my father having a say about something, he may be wrong, but ultimately she's like, oh, okay, dear, we'll do that. And then if he bumps his head, she's there and fully equipped and able to pick him back up and pick up the situation. Hmm. So looking back on this relationship that you were in, um, what did you learn from it? Who? Um, that I am inferior to no one and that um, I feel like my victim, I feel like he loved me, you know? He loved me with what he had to love me with. It mm. didn't, I'm not to, it's not to invali- invalidate like what he felt, you know? I don't want to do that. But I know what I want in a relationship now. And at first I was just trying to mimic what I knew and I fully understand as a grown woman what I want and need out of life and out of a relationship. And that is what that relationship taught me the most. It taught me what I was capable of um, coming here as a result of that relationship. um, I didn't know how much I could bear. I didn't know I had a strong back, you know. (laughs) And uh, today I know fully who I am and fully what I'm capable of and what I want out of life and my partner. What is that? What do you want out of a relationship with a partner? Um, I want to be able to step back and let my husband lead. I want to be able to step forward when I need to and feel it is appropriate. I want to be able to have friends and um, do what interests me, do what moves me, um, I know that I am. I should be able to have passions and and move forward in life and acquire what I want to acquire and have ambitions and move towards them. I shouldn't have anyone. A relationship shouldn't broaden, shouldn't dampen life for me. It should broaden my horizons, and so that is what I deserve out of a relationship. I deserve equal. I deserve equality. I deserve respect. I deserve to be honored and. Um, I deserve to be loved, and I, I want that for myself. I'm just curious. Do you think that, because um, we've talked about it, learned violence and things like that, mm-hmm. do you think that experiencing violence can push somebody to violence? I can only speak from a personal experience, and I definitely got pushed into a corner where I had to come out of it one way or another. Um, yeah, I, I, for myself, yes, the answer is yes. When you get to a point where you're so fearful of taking your next breath, there you are just in your own prison. That was worse than this prison, you know? It was worse than what I'm enduring right now. And I just got to a point where, you know, there was a particular day and I just got to that point where he was hurting me and he was doing so in a way as if he didn't know me or as if I was his enemy. And I was really afraid for my life, so... I had no option. I had to I had to defend myself. And so experiencing that violence is what caused me ultimately to I guess act in that way in that manner. You said uh, 11 and a half years ago when you came into prison that you didn't really talk to anybody and you didn't really you has that changed for you and how? <laughs> you like that? I think you know the answer to that. No, not really. Yes and no. Um, I, ooh, I struggle with people, and um, 
really hard. Say, say more about that. What do you mean? I struggle. I just struggle with letting people in still. I uh, am afraid of still feeling sometimes, uh, whether it's a friendship. I've, I've had friendships. I've tried to have friendships in here. And then I don't know like what the ultimate betrayal is. And then what just like, let that person be that person. And this is different. I'm like, nah, we ain't cut from the same cloth kind of thing. And it's not really, it's not fair to hold people to that standard, to the standard I want them to reach. It's, it's, but it's what I do. And I'm just really trying to learn to feel my way around and learn to trust people, um, learn to not like something about someone and move forward with, with, uh, an acquaintance as opposed to just writing them off. Nope. Don't like that. Can't talk to you moving around. You know, that's how I, I just, there's a fear of people and then there's just a dislike of things. And when I see, I'm in a situation where these women, like a lot of them are broken. They're diamonds in the rough, man. And um, oftentimes they impose whatever they've gone through on other people unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. I don't know. For me, things were intentional at times and unintentional at times. So I just don't want to be caught in the crossfire, that kind of stuff, because I know how I am and I'm still working on some things. So, yeah, mm, that makes sense. Mm. You in the bio, you've done so many groups and stuff like you've had to work with people and be with people. And do you, is it a comfortable space that you feel when you're in those group settings or is it an uncomfortable space? Uncomfortable. I am. <laughs> I am never comfortable in a class where um, I can be judged or picked apart. And a lot of times those classes require that, you know, they want you to do that. They want you to open up. They want you to share yourself. And, uh, that's just not who I am. I'm very introverted. And so sharing is hard for me, but I continue to do that. I, t- I continue to go to classes. I continue to reach out to people. Um, I, d- I just, now I go to the classes for different reasons. Um, and I reach out to people for different reasons because I just don't want my victim's life to be in vain, the loss of his life. You know, I want, I want to live it so that I can help someone for him, for his family, for myself, um, just to have purpose in life. I, I need to get things from these classes so that I have tools to help other people. And that's ultimately what I want to do for the rest of my life. If there's someone who's listening, who's experiencing abuse of some form, whether that's mental, emotional, physical, sexual, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. what would you want to say to them? Ooh, um... That's a really hard question because I knew at that time in my life there was really nothing that could be said to me. Um, I don't want to invalidate anyone's feelings for their spouse or their boyfriend or partner or whatever. But if you're going through something that, like I was, and you're being abused, you have the potential to rise to the occasion and to, to leave. You have that you have that power to leave. And as scary as it might be, not leaving could land you here. And it hasn't been a completely horrible role, but to change before you get here is what you want to do. You don't want to miss out on graduations and uh, your children growing up and your family growing old. You don't want to miss out on 
not achieving out of life what you wanted to achieve. Um, and it, if you really love this person, leaving him or her is the best thing to do. Sometimes letting go is loving someone. Uh, is there anything that you would like people to know about you? Um, who? Again, I'm not a really open person, so that's a really hard question for me. Uh, I want people to know that I'm not who I was 11 and a half years ago. I am clawing and scratching and climbing to get to where I want to be in life. I have a passion to um, help people that are not, that were in my situation uh, and feel like there's no way out. I have ideas to change laws. I have um, ideas to maybe bring about some light to these women. Um, I love my children. I love my parents. Not a day goes by that I don't think of my victim and his family and the people that lost him, his friends, you know. I lost him too, and I think that's really hard for victims to understand. They think it's really one-sided, and they hear these things in court that um, you really can't clarify sometimes, whether it's as a, it's a result of your attorneys giving you advice or you coming to prison and uh, the court has ordered you not to reach out. Um, eventually, I, I want to talk to my victim's family. I want to answer those hard questions. I am self-actualized, and I will not um, gyp them of the truth and what they desire to hear and know about me. Um, I love doing the dog program. I love doing uh, Do You Pie <laughs> and uh, the theater activities. And I'm just moving forward with life. And I know that sometimes um, the victim's families and, and society doesn't want us to move forward when we're in prison. They have this idea about who we are. They have this idea about what we should be, um, what we deserve. And um, that does not stop me. And I'm just moving forward with my life. I have no other choice. I love my parents. <laughs> love you, mom, and if I've you're met, listening. Yeah, I've met your mom a couple of times at a family reunification event. She's such a lovely woman. Yeah, yeah that's my bestie. Be- yeah, you have a beautiful family. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We have a resident poet who works with us on our um, on our podcast, and he writes poems as we um, do interviews, and we have one for you. Okay, thank you. You want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. It's called An Unbroken Love. Removed from the world, a good girl, throwing pity parties every day, dodging people and judgmental eyes and all the things that people say, staying strong in faith, a state of submission in heart, beautiful in its own way, almost like art. Realizing I am not broken, seeing equality as a sense of growth, not just for myself, but truly for us both. Captivated by change, dancing with expectations and hurt, knowing what it means to be broken and if nothing will work, standing on a beach alone, throwing beautiful rocks into the sea, saying you can rise to levels unknown. An unbroken love is not me. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for being with us, Maji. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> welcome, Bob. So I just want to say thank you for, for being with us. You're welcome. How are you feeling? A little nervous. <clears throat> yeah. What are you thinking? I'm just thinking that uh, talking about this subject, addressing this subject, it's uh, it's uncomfortable, but it should be. You know, uh, part of what leads to it is is not addressing uncomfortable things that's part of what led to the issues you know not uh, not going outside your comfort zone and dealing with things that make you not feel good it will compound it and it will snowball and increase and one thing as we were preparing for this interview that you said to me is you said Ashley how um how do we do this and make it so that it's clear that I'm not um, blaming it on something else or not taking responsibility, but at the same time explain the complexity of what happened. And I, I think that's a question you've been sitting in since we talked about doing this. Yeah, it's a difficult balance, I think, to discuss what led up to something or the ingredients, so to speak, that led to the mixture of bad decisions that gets you to a certain point without trying to justify it. How do you explain something without making it sound like you're making up excuses? That's that's a difficult balance to keep. And I just want to make sure that in no way I come across as minimizing my actions or justifying them, blaming them on anybody else but me. You know, mm-hmm. um, I always had a choice. It was always my hands, my words, my behavior that led up to this. You know, it was never, no one forced me, no one made me. Uh, In this situation, I'm the bad guy, you know, and uh, shouldn't be handled with kid gloves. The conversation needs to be had and that possibly going to this part of my past could help someone else prevent repeating it or suffering it. You know, because in in all situations, whether it's a healthy relationship or unhealthy relationship, there's going to be confrontations. There's going to be anger. No one gets along 100% of the time. But what do you do with that? And maybe that sharing my story can help someone realize, okay, what I'm doing is unhealthy. What I'm doing is getting worse. And, And maybe make them focus on it. You know, or for potential victims of domestic violence, they maybe sometimes because of the way they grew up, they don't realize some of the red flags or the indicators that that it could be progressing towards harm for them or injury or worse. Because at the end of the day, when anger fades, anger is momentary emotion for most people. It doesn't last days and weeks. But, you know, the the red marks, the swelling, the bruises, those last. 
long, long after the anger fades. And even more is the scars on your heart for both the the victim and the perpetrator, but more so for the victim. That's one thing that I really have got a better understanding with through the classes I've taken, especially restorative justice, is the impact that it has on victims of violence and trauma. Um, things like trigger trigger words that bring up memories. You know, we're, we're sitting 16, 15, 16 years out of the last time that I was violent with my partner. And there's still going to be words or things she sees that are going to bring up them emotions like she just went through them yesterday. And if this conversation can help prevent actions from taking place that cause people to suffer like that, then this is something that needs talked about. What did life look like before prison, Bob? So I guess that would kind of be a two-part answer. Um, (laughs) Because life was going on a certain trajectory for me. And then uh, about three years before prison, that trajectory changed. Um, Growing up as youth, had a lot of potential and people saw that in me. So... In a lot of ways, I was like the, for lack of a better term, golden child of, of my generation and my family. I was kind of the one that everybody expect to make it, you know, to to do big things with his life. And uh, I was on that path, honestly. I wound up being the first one from my family to graduate high school, you know, and, and I'm very proud of that. But uh, throughout that whole time, there was a flip side too, you know, I was good and excellent student and a good kid 90% of the time but that other 10% was the total opposite of that kid you know uh, had anger problems I was violent a lot getting in fights in school what made you angry do you remember lots of stuff yeah (laughs) yeah you know um, when I was younger I had a huge problem with bottling my anger I didn't feel, obviously when you're seven years old, you don't process complex thought like that. But looking back, I I know that I didn't feel comfortable showing other emotions. Um, Can you, can you say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you say some of those emotions now that you later did? So if somebody's listening, they can maybe identify. Yeah, not a problem. So... You got to look at the time setting, too. We're talking about the late 80s and early 90s when I'm going through my childhood. And that was back in a time when society, as a, as a young man, as a little boy, some of the worst things you can be called was a crybaby or, or, you know, gay, things like that. And those were the things back then. If you showed emotions, if you showed sensitivity, uh, if you cried, you know what I mean? If, if sadness... Basically, anything outside of anger, you were you were called those kind of things, and you were made to feel bad about yourself. And that was a societal problem, I believe, that we've got away from to a certain extent, which is a good thing. But there were other things, too, you know, not to, uh, 
not to upset the balance of blaming anyone else or or blaming parents because I believe they get too much blame for people's mistakes. But there was things inside the home that contributed to that. You know, uh, I remember getting told things like suck it up, be a man, don't cry or I'm going to give you something to cry about. Those were things that, that while I do believe a, a father's job is to help toughen a child, you know what I mean? You, you got to be able to deal with difficult things and not just quiver up in a ball. You know what I mean? Um, the intention is good, but the result is bad because what it teaches, things, getting told things like that as a child is that that emotion is unacceptable. Do you think, I'm just, I'm thinking about your parents. Do you think that your parents knew how to hold difficult emotions? Because usually you can't teach what you don't know, right? So I'm just wondering, like, was that the way your dad was taught as well? No, honestly, I think my dad was taught even worse than that. And and I love my grandpa. He was, he was a great man. Um, I, I hold him in my memory very fondly, but my dad had even a tougher upbringing as a child um if if what he got if what i got was 50 percent, what he got was 80 percent. as far as the you don't cry you know you you don't show that kind of emotion you have to be strong you're a man Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff so i believe that my dad tried to do a better job with me than was done with him um and i mean that's the goal of each generation to do better than their parents but uh, I guess without acknowledging where our parents messed up, we can't move forwards and do better ourselves. And that's part of that. And it contributes. No, I don't think my parents knew how to handle complex emotions very well. Um, I believe that they were doing the best they could with what they knew how to handle their emotions they grew up around violence and not to excuse it, but that's what they knew. You know, physical fighting, verbal abuse, things like that. And so frequently when they were going through complex emotions, that's what manifested in their behavior too. Um, so sometimes while they did the, the good parent thing and told me, you know, don't get mad, don't hit, don't yell. At the same time, they were getting mad and hitting each other and yelling. So, so you witnessed, <clears throat> so you witnessed domestic violence as a child. I did, I did. They they tried not to have us kids witness it, but I mean, as a parent speaking for myself, not just for them. Um, if you lose control of your emotions enough to be violent with your spouse, with your partner, with a family member, you're not fully aware of who's around or who's in eyesight. If you were taking time to think that much, you wouldn't be doing what you were doing. I can sense that you don't want to blame your parents, but that also that's just the reality, that you did witness domestic violence, and I can tell you're trying not to like blame what we're about to get into on that. We've also had previous conversations. While at the same time, Again, holding this complexity of that, that impacts you. And we're not blaming it on that. We're not saying that then you didn't have responsibility in your actions later. But I'm really unpacking 
sort of the different pieces of this puzzle. I, am I getting that right? I can just... No, you, you got your finger on that pulse pretty good there. Yeah. So really it was, it was training in one way for me, you know, I was, I was good at sports and I was good in school, things like that. And, you know, I met this incredible woman and fell in love and I thought I could have my cake and eat it too, right? I mean, who doesn't think that at 16 years old, um, somewhere around there, through that process, uh, we decided that if we started having a family, you know, it was okay. We were ready. That, that's what we had thought. So we, we stopped using protection and wound up pregnant. And my senior year, we, we had a little boy, my son. And I continued thinking that I could still have my cake and eat it too, you know. Uh, the domestic violence problems had started manifesting I guess the seeds of those during that time but it was easy to overlook because times were so good it was little blips on the radar the first time that I remember uh, her and I having the domestic violence issue we were we were in the middle of a an argument and you know as most arguments go between two people it was probably not something very important honestly I don't remember what the argument was about and she got angry and and kind of pushed my chest and went to walk away which I should have let her do but in the heat of the moment I grabbed her arm and prevented her from walking away we continued to argue worked it out uh without getting into a long dry story for the for the people listening a couple weeks later, it manifested an argument with her and her mother over us being grounded from each other because of the incident. The, the mother wasn't made aware of the incident and was trying to, I guess, you know, probably teach us that it was unacceptable by grounding us from each other. When she told her mom she couldn't keep us apart, her mom tried to do the right thing and keep us apart. Um, I think she had good intentions. And she called the police, and I was charged with domestic violence. However, for various reasons, probably mainly having to do with the fact I was a juvenile, my parents would be responsible for paying for the classes. Part of my consequences was not taking domestic violence classes, which probably would have been very fitting at the time and very helpful. So there was an opportunity for you to take a class, but your parents had to pay for it. Yeah, but it wasn't one of those things where, you know, they were like, oh, we think you should take this class. Mom, mom and dad were like, oh, they don't have the money. I'm putting my own thinking into why the judge didn't even make that. Looking back, it wasn't even discussed as an option as part of the court proceedings. Hmm. I was... I was placed on probation, you know, at the time of my life, I was a, a good kid, you know, a well-adjusted, seemingly young man who had everything going for him, my good grades and, and everything like that, you know. So I, I think several factors went into that as far as, you know, the judge's decision. So 
that was a blip on the radar. And uh, for the most part, throughout that time of high school, her and I didn't have a lot of physical altercations. Our, our domestic violence issues were more verbal or nonverbal. And then I went to college. Um, I had a football scholarship, and I had left for for spring camp, for spring training for football. And before I ever got to campus, I knew I had left my heart in Denver with my son. He was nine months old at the time, and it was the easiest decision I ever made, but one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to walk away from football to be a dad. I couldn't do both. I couldn't have my cake and eat it, too. That was kind of my aha moment of, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Life's changed. If I wasn't Robert the football player, Robert the academic, Robert the guy that his whole family can be proud of and brag on, and you know what I mean, who was I? And I didn't know the answer to that. Um, I was like, okay, well, I'm giving up football to be a dad. So now I'm Robert the dad and Robert the fiance, you know, soon to be husband, uh, Robert the guy who goes to work. And I didn't have a problem with that. But life didn't play out like I thought it was going to. Um, I think as part of everything shifting and me losing track of who I was, I started identifying myself too much based upon my relationships with people and not who I actually was. And that led to very complicated emotions within inside myself that, frankly, I wasn't equipped to handle. It led to a lot of emotions that I couldn't communicate, which led to a lot of frustration and anger. And unfortunately, not that everybody has the problems that I have with being violent to those around them, um, but we tend to take those emotions out on those we're closest to and those we love the most. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't sure I was ready to be the dad that I needed to be for my son. I wasn't sure if I was ready to be the husband I needed to be. Turns out I wasn't. So you would experience fear and that would turn into anger. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of other emotion. Uh, while I was very pleased with the decision I made, there was a lot of negative emotion that I put on myself because I felt like I let everybody down by giving up college, by coming home. You had to rewrite your story real quick. I did. I did. I was like rewriting it without any pen or pencil. There was an unhealthy re reliance on the relationships that were the closest to me with my parents, with the woman I was involved with at the time, that I, I believe to a certain extent could be described as ob obsessed. Or codependent, maybe. Codependent, or, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just, I, this question came into my mind. Were you and your father ever violent towards each other? Like physically violent? Yes. That was, uh, that was something that didn't manifest itself 
as far as being physically violent with each other until after I came back from college. Um, and that, that is a, that could be an episode all on its own. That's so complicated. The dynamics between father and son. And, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm identifying now. I'm Robert, the man, Robert, the dad, Robert, the fiance, and I'm living under another man's roof. That is a very complicated dynamic to be wanting to be a man in control of my own family, but living under my father's roof. That created a lot of conflict between me and my dad. We're talking about domestic violence, domestic of the home, right? So we're not just talking about partner violence. We're no. talking, and so you're, you've gotten at that this is way more complex than just, I'm obsessed with my girlfriend, don't leave me. Right. This is has so many different sort of offshoots and pathways, um, which is why we're having this conversation. Because I think it's easy to kind of just say, you know, you didn't want to lose, you didn't want to lose your partner, so you became violent. I think that's way too we're, that minimizes and simplifies it. I'm wondering if you can walk us through um, when you would be violent towards your partner, or maybe even towards a family member, sort of. Walk us through what would happen in that moment. Yeah, there's there's always a progression with that. And, and I can't speak for anybody else, but I don't think I'm alone in saying that things escalate. And I imagine I'm not the only one who bottles things up. That's something that's been very helpful in me addressing my issues is learning how not to bottle things up. So let's say, for example... I'll uh, try to figure out something here that, that can correlate that's easy for people to understand. You know how oil works. There's this pressurized pocket under the earth, and you drill down into it, and the pressure comes up through the pipe, right? Well, that's kind of how this goes for me. This is kind of how it went. I would bottle all that stuff up, that loss of identity, that dependence, that, that conflict here, there, the other place. You know, All the hurt. All the hurt. That's the perfect description. Thank you. You bottle up all the hurt, and then something happens. Stick that to drill down to stick that straw in it, so to speak, and it comes gushing out. Um, and you hurt, and then I hurt. Yeah, there is a definite cause and effect to that. Of for me, a lot of times when I became violent. It was, I was hurt and, and I just wanted to hurt back. And frequently the person I hurt wasn't even the cause of all the hurt I was feeling. I'm curious to know that, like, so when you were engaged in these activities, right, when you were hurting, you know, your, your spouse, um, what, were your, what were your thoughts? You know, during, what were your thoughts immediately after? Were you ever remorseful? Did Always. you ever express it? You know, and then why would you return to the same behavior? Sorry for interrupting you. Always no, remorseful. Um, I kind of shook my head when you were talking, when you had said, what were your thoughts during? Man, during? Wasn't no thoughts. It was just action, reaction. It was like riding a wave of anger. When you're on a wave, you can't control where you're going. You're out there. Till that wave dissipates or you crash and crashed a lot 
There's so much anger for everything, but yet you're still loving this woman and you're trying to communicate to her somehow. And I think that's where it gets frustrating. I think for people that don't understand people that are violent is there's a frustration is because you're, you're communicating you are. And, um, but you have not figured out the right way to do it. And I wondered though, does it, after the first time, is it almost easier to do it the next time? And then the next time, is it this perpetual easier, easier, easier? Easier. Is it the, the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, that's probably oversimplifying it a little to say it's easier I'm each sure. time. Yeah. But it's also harder each time. Um, you touched on something that that the, the communication, the the lack of being able to communicate your emotions, definitely leads to it. Because I just want to believe that everybody's been frustrated at some point in their life, and they just don't know what to do with that. And um, that's I, I'm not trying to excuse it. I just think that that's often the frustration. It's almost a I think of a little child that wants something, but that they haven't formed language yet. And then they just start screaming or they start hitting their head. It's, it's almost, that's what I think of. No, that's a good example because it becomes easier in that you get your way. And I don't think anyone ever just thinks, okay, well I'm going to be violent and then I'll get my way. But when you lose control of yourself, when you snap and are violent or, or, Aggressive because not all domestic violence is physical violence. Sometimes it is emotional. It's verbal. You, you know, it sexual. can sexual. It can it can look so many different ways. But at the end of the day, if you handle your emotions and communicate it unhealthy by being violent in whatever form that takes, and you get your way, it becomes easier in a unconscious way, almost as in like a learned behavior, right? When I do this, this happens. I may not be proud of it. I may not feel good about it. But in that moment where all I can think about is this singular thing in front of me of not being able to talk about the way I feel, this alleviates what I feel in that moment. It's hard not to repeat that. And I think over the last 14 years of your time inside, you seem to have really made massive strides in learning how to communicate. I mean, you're incredibly well-spoken and articulate about your emotions. You're one of my students in my program. I know you well. You're one of my group leaders. And I thought of you immediately when this came up because of how articulate you are and how well you are, how you have such an ability now to name your emotions. Can you talk a little bit about that process of learning how to communicate? I mean, what do you do? You must, you live in prison. You must feel anger all the time. I imagine, I know things anger you in here. What do you do now when you get angry? How, what have you learned and what do you do now? Um, I would say, first off, I still don't always succeed in handling it the way I want to, the way I think I should. But now, I think, I talk, I don't just react. Reaction is is what has led me to most of my mistakes and most of the regret I have in my life. 
you know, and, and that's part of my motivation for, for talking about this subject and addressing this difficult part of life is so that maybe other people don't have to come to the point of ruining their lives before they're motivated to change. For me, I didn't change until I ruined my life. So I'm hoping that this conversation can can help someone see that they're on the wrong path or maybe they're in an unhealthy relationship so they don't have to come to this point. You know, if you're not good at talking about your emotions, there's resources out there. You know, there's safe places where you can learn how to talk about things. Take that step. Because if not, that's the path you're on. You know, and, and ruining your life don't just mean coming to prison, you know, losing the relationships that you have. It can take all different forms. Um, to get back to your question, though, now I try to think when I'm upset, why am I upset? Is that rational? Because cause let's just be real. Sometimes when you get upset, it's not rational. You look at it and you're like, wow, why was I so upset? That was not that big of a deal, you know? Um, and then I, I address it. I don't let it bottle up like I used to. Once I've had a, a minute to think about it and kind of process my own thoughts and emotions about it, then I'm ready to talk to the person. Hey, I feel upset because of this or that, you know, and, and Sometimes it isn't like the person's fault. It was a miscommunication in a circumstance. I've actually found as I've learned to process my emotions and communicate better with people, 90% of confrontations and conflict come from misunderstanding, from people not communicating with one another. So I guess to answer your question in short, the best way I've learned how to handle those difficult situations in life and, and my anger at that or in that is to communicate. There's an angry guy right now listening, right? And, you know, he's violent, you know, towards his family, towards his spouse, his children, whoever. Um, what would you tell what would you tell him? What advice would you give him or what comments would you have for him? you're making it worse you're trying to hold on to the situation you're trying to control the situation but you're making it worse and if you don't stop you're going to lose every relationship that you're trying to hold close I know for me personally that was a big source of it when everything was changing and going crazy all I wanted to do was hold that relationship close and hold on to my partner. But because I didn't know how to do that in a healthy way, what I really did was push her away. When you were being violent, physically, emotionally, verbally, if you could have distilled down into what you were really trying to say to her underneath those actions... What was the, what was the message that you were actually trying to communicate? D depending on the situation, it's is different. It wasn't always the same thing, but probably the two that come up most frequently is 
I need help. And I'm afraid of losing you. What do you think would have happened if you had said to her, I need help and I don't want to lose you? I think she would have been there for me and helped me. I think she would have loved me more for my honesty. It would have definitely showed her more of my feelings for her than the violence did. Because that's what was really going through my mind and my heart. You know, so I don't want to lose you. If I would have just said, I don't want to lose you, we could have talked about that conversation instead of screaming and fighting. You know, for anybody listening, it's, it's, it's not too late. It is sad, not, not for me to be a sad story, but it is sad that, that children grow up not knowing how to talk and communicate about stuff like that because it leads to lie problems in relationships not just intimate relationships but friendships family the whole nine but it's not too late if you're someone that grew up without that you can still change and you can have healthier relationships like but it it's going to take hard work the hard work is a lot easier than living with the regret and the pain for you and the people you hurt Just, uh, I guess, if there's anything like a parting message. Sorry. No, take your time. It would just, uh, you know, for everybody, people who have a hard time expressing their emotions, or people who love someone, who has a hard time expressing their emotions, just be who you are instead of who you think you need to be. If you're a sensitive person, be sensitive. You know, if you're someone who is insecure, talk about it. It's not going to get better by ignoring it. And anything you do outside of that is only going to lead to negative emotions inside, and it's not going to be good. Whether you internalize it or you take it out on someone, it is super unhealthy. So even though it sucks and it's hard, you got to address that stuff. Problems don't get solved on their own. You've got to address them. To my victims, I'm sorry. You know, I can't change what I did. I cannot take back the pain I inflicted. But I'm not who I used to be. And that makes me feel good because I know that I'm not going to continue creating victims. We have a resident poet here (laughs) at Within, William S. Graham. And um, Will writes poems for every person that we interview as they're speaking. And we have a poem that we would like to share with you. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. So this is The Cover-Up by William S. Graham. Who am I? A canvas of spotted emotions, refusing to share them with anyone. Moving in motion, they said, don't tell them you're hurting. Who am I? Competition meets empathy at the door. 
I ate crushed glass for years, cutting myself too deep to bear. I looked at the world with my heart sore on a tour of pain, numb to the surfboard of blankness. I tried to talk to. I wanted to. I needed to. Please don't hide from me. I am begging you. Don't change me. Don't tell me enough is enough. Don't run away and lie to yourself. Don't become part of the cover-up. Thank you. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there are resources, including local Colorado organizations and facilities listed in our episode show notes and on our website, thisiswithin.com. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Next time on Within. William S. Graham, resident at DRDC. With me, I was one of them people that, you know, a lot of people tripped out on because I didn't really go crazy. My thing was art. Like, I always, I was like the person that you can always find, like, rapping to myself. Like, CEOs walk by, they'll tell you, like, Graham, he's always rapping to himself in his cell. He's always kind of real reserved I always felt like as long as you gave me a pen and a piece of paper I can go from there like that was like my 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 island I used to escape to we wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado so we started a newsletter it's called reverberations from within if you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it visit our website at thisiswithin.com If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DUPI founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard. Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com.